The content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan, and we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. It sure does, doesn't it, Sissy? It really matters. Yes, it I have a great story today about a little guy I worked with a long time ago. I think I talked about those teachers that were working with preschoolers with disabilities. Yes. I was the speech therapist for. Mm-hmm. Um, so this little guy, Stephen, was, whoo, he was a very interesting little fellow when he showed up. His hair was cut very, very short because he had been pulling his own hair out. Aww. He had bite marks on his arms. He was in boots because he would not keep shoes on his feet. And he was on medication because of the whole hair pulling biting thing. So the teacher that was working with him, phenomenal teacher, he was a very, very busy little guy all over everything. In fact, down the road, when the assessment came in, the guy that came in to do the assessment Part of the report said each appendage was touching a different toy. <laughs> I mean, his hand, one hand would be on one toy, a foot and a foot, you know, he was just all over the place. Oh. So she created a smaller area with a bookcase and she would bring in one toy at a time. I mean, it, it was, you know, big enough for him to move around, big enough for the two of them to move around, sure. but she would just bring in one toy at a time and introducing to that toy and teach him how to play with that toy. If you were in the room while she was working with him, you might see a boot come flying over the bookcase. (laughs) He would manage to get those boots and socks off at some point, but it took him a little longer with boots than with shoes. Uh, So he would be barefoot by the time it was time to go to lunch. And when we were at lunch, he would have both hands and a foot in his food. He wasn't being a bad boy. He just was experiencing the food. You know, that's little, how he rolled. Yeah, little children will do that. They'll put food in their mouth and they'll touch the food. They're feeling it with their mouth. They're feeling it with their hands. And that's what he was doing. Uh, he was assessed and he, they decided he had fragile X syndrome. They asked that he go be tested for that. And yes, lo and behold, he tested out for fragile X. And, and the doctor that, diagnosed him said, oh, well, the hair pulling and the biting and all that busy behavior is related to his fragile X. And they took him off the meds for that cold turkey. And they are some pretty heavy duty medications. I mean, it, he, it righted itself eventually, but it was, you know, kind of a bumpy ride while we waited for that to get off. So, you know, I was a speech therapist and I would be helping at lunchtime or whatever, certainly a good time to work on speech with a kiddo. And he became my assignment at lunchtime. So I didn't like his feet in his food. And and so I thought, well, you know, what we're going to do is before you go to lunch, because food is pretty reinforcing, we're going to put those socks and shoes back on, you know, reminding him, shoot boots first, then lunch, boots first, then lunch. And we get his socks and boots back on and off we'd go to lunch. The boots helped him not put his feet in his food anymore. So now I'm trying to figure out, okay, feet aren't in the food, but his hands are still in the food. So what we did was we put a napkin 
on either side of his tray and a fork that he was going to use. And we would have him keep, he was right-handed. So we'd have him keep his left hand on the napkin on the left side, pick up the fork, take a bite and put the fork back down and put the hand on that napkin while he was eating. And that gave him an idea of what to do with his hands instead sure. of putting them in the food. So that worked. Now we're eating lunch. We're not uh, putting hands or feet in food. Pretty long process it took us to get there, but eventually it did. And the teacher taught him how to play with toys in that little area. And then she brought him out into a larger area uh, and helped him learn how to continue to play with those toys and, you know, not climb on furniture and get himself into some dangerous situations. But it was shaping his behavior over time, little by little. A lot of things that you brought up in that, that I think need to be pointed out, you know, one of those is that you have to teach skills, right? And he is a kid who came to the learning environment not really having a whole lot of skills in his repertoire because he had fragile X and he had, you know, um, autism and he had a lot of sensory needs and things like that. And so I love that y'all actually taught him what to do with his hands, right? You know, I've seen a lot of people who, or I've been around people who will say things like, well, he, you know, I have to feed him because he can't eat. Well, then let's teach him how to eat. You know, I've had moms come up to schools and feed their kids and say, well, he won't eat unless I feed him. Well, we have to teach him, you know, and I love that idea of teaching him what to do with his hands. And it reminds me so many of so many teachers who, you know, take the outline of the hands and, and draw around them and then cut out construction paper and tape it to the desk to teach kids what to do with their hands because they don't want their kids' hands in their pants or hands in their shoes or hands in their diaper or hands in their bottom, you know? Yes. And so I love that story. It's a great story. And it sounds like he, you know, he had so many sensory issues going on with his feet. And the other piece that I loved is that amount of time that you as a speech therapist and the teachers took to teach him these really important skills, you know, playing with toys. That's a really important skill. And lots of kids with autism, you know, they don't play with toys appropriately. I remember Gail and I were doing an evaluation a friend of mine, a friend of ours named Gail, and it was in a little boy's house and I had toys being thrown. I mean, we were ducking and, you know, blocking because he just did not play with toys. But the other interesting piece that I loved is that you didn't, the teacher didn't just stop in that small area that she worked to move it out for maintenance, but also for generalization, you know, because you teach a kid in a small area how to play with toys. That's wonderful. But where else is there going to be a small area, right? We've got to be in proximity with other kids and with other adults and with different toys and different environments. And so I'm sure the mom and dad of this little guy, Stephen, really appreciated all your hard work. Yeah, I think that they did. He, he was a, a sweet, sweet little boy. You know, he is definitely an example of the the teaching piece being so critical and not necessarily just correction piece. You know, if you, you would be constantly correcting him and he wouldn't have any idea what you were correcting him for because he was such a busy little fellow. Sure. So. A lot of times, you know, you might be in a classroom with a kiddo like that and you hear a lot of, no, stop, no, don't stop, don't, no, quit, quit it, no, stop. And I, you know, I know we've said this before on the podcast, but I just laugh whenever I hear that because I just want to shake my head and go, don't you think he's heard that before? 
you know, and it hadn't worked yet. So let's try something different. <laughs> and for a kiddo as busy as this little fellow, it would have to be in close association with the exact behavior you're trying to teach him. And he's doing 12 things at one time. Right. So, you know, that was why that teacher knew I need to start out in a, and eliminate the stimuli, you know, as much as I can be able to help him focus on what he's doing. I mean, it, to a degree, it, you know, it's not, it wasn't exactly discrete trial training, but it was pretty close what she was doing. Well, and you started, you know, at acquisition and taught yeah. him one-on-one. And I do think it was probably a lot of discrete trials with playing with toys. And then you moved to fluency where you were reducing prompts and reducing the level of reinforcement or fading the schedule of reinforcement. And then, like I said, she moved it out to maintenance and generalization. So that's just, it's beautiful. You know, it's just gorgeous in terms of teaching and going through those levels of learning and recognizing that sometimes you have to back up and teach how to be ready to learn. And, you know, he came to the learning environment, not being ready to learn with by no, no one's fault. And then you taught him to be able to learn, which is so wonderful and so fantastic. Yeah. And that's been more than 30 years ago that these teachers in a fairly, what you would probably consider a small little Texas town knew exactly what to do to help this little guy learn and be able to play with his friends and interact with his friends and be able, you know, I mean, yes, eventually you want him to sit at a table and be able to do what the kids are doing at the table, but he, there was no way that was going to happen. You would have been crawling under the table, over the table, every, you would have been chasing that little fella because he was curious, so curious. He wanted to know how everything worked. And so he would be busy, busy. They definitely had the view to where am I headed with this? You know, what does he need? Where is he right this minute? Like you say, that acquisition, what can he acquire next? And I'm building toward what I really want for him down the road. You know, and as we talk again all the time about the view to 22, right? Or the view to 18 or the view to adulthood. We, you know, even though he was a little guy, a young little learner, you're always having, you have to have that in the back of your brain. I don't care if you're an EC, early childhood special education teacher or a therapist of two-year-olds and three-year-olds or a BCBA in a clinical setting. We've always got to be looking toward the future. Otherwise, we just teach kids a set of skills that aren't really functional or meaningful. And I know we've said that before. Well, we can't say that too much. You know, you think about if you are in schools, in public schools, you have if they're a child with a disability, you could have up to 19 years, you know, they start when they're three, they have until the year that, you know, they can start school if they're 21 when school year starts and have that year. And that seems like a lot when they're three, 19 years sounds like a long time, but you talk to those mamas and daddies who have high schoolers and, and they'll tell you, be thinking, be thinking at three, what you want for them. And it's perfectly fine for what you want to change. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, I was talking to a mom who has a little guy who's real high functioning and she is saying he loves animals. He is so great with animals. I just know he's going to work with animals, whether he's a veterinarian or working in a zoo or something like that. And I think, yeah, right now, while he is seven or eight years old, 
that's what it looks like. And that's great. Let's plan according to that interest. But if when he's 10, now all of a sudden his interest is uh, volcanoes or yeah, yeah, sea life or volcanoes or whatever. Yeah. Or cooking, you know, it could, it could shift. I think one of that's one of the most fun things about working with children on the spectrum is you really can't predict, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you can't say he's not going to college or he, you know, you can't say that because you don't know. They will surprise you. And well, look at Cowboy. Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, I, you know, like we said in the other podcasts, I've known him since he was four. And even Cowboy's mom said, who would have, I, who would have ever thought that my kiddo would be working for a paycheck and yeah. be able to fish by himself and be patient? So, you know, I certainly would have predicted that. And so I think that's really important, too, is to always look at today, this is what I want for him, but that might change. And, you know, I was involved in a person-centered planning meeting with your former school district. Yes. With a wonderful, really amazing colleague. She, you know, recognized that mom and dad and and the girl really wanted to work with animals in a really professional capacity, you know, like to be a veterinarian. Yeah. And as she, you know, transitioned into middle school, high school, you know, that focus kind of shifted through the person-centered planning to getting a job in a a animal, a pet store, you know, because that's just kind of where the girl was. She, she wasn't, you know, showing the skills that you would need to be a veterinarian. And I just love that, you know, it's such, such a respectful thing for the family and for the learner, you know, the student to really listen and, and say, yes, we can make something like that happen. It may not be in a vet clinic, but you could be, you know, a caregiver in a vet clinic, or you could be a, you know, a caregiver in a pet store or work in a pet store, you know. um, Or a vet tech. I mean, you know, those, they're amazing things that, that you can do if you love animals. Sure. And the person-centered plan, you mentioned that I I do love that uh, process. And I love it to be repeated because yes. what that five-year-old, you know, going from a preschool program into regular school is where they're going is one thing. And then if they're transitioning from elementary to middle, middle to high, and we're looking at that again, it's, it's wonderful to say, Oh, remember when we did this before she wasn't able to do any chores on her mm-hmm. own. And look at all the chores she does now. That's right. So, it, it makes me really excited for our interview with Dr. Vicki Mitchell, um, yeah. because she is such a, you know, nationally known transition expert. And, you know, she taught me so much because, um, Sissy, you probably remember this in Texas back in, I don't know, remember 2013, 2014, we had some changes to the Texas autism supplement. And one of the changes was the addition of futures planning at any age. And so not too long ago, I was going through a student's IEP and on the autism supplement, the kiddo was, I think, maybe a kinder first grade. And um, it said not applicable due to age. And so I emailed Dr. Mitchell and I said, how, how, how do I get around? I mean, like, how do I address this? Because it's really always applicable. Futures planning. Yes. It's like saying, you know, you have a baby and you don't start a college fund until they're, you know, fifth grade. No, mom and I know my niece and my niece has started a college fund when their kids are still in the womb. So, you know, to say it's not applicable to my, to me is a little bit, 
you know, the autism supplement says it is applicable for kids. Um, (laughs) You know, Texas is the only place that has the autism supplement, but it specifically talks about when kids are transitioning or you're thinking about future transitions. When are you not thinking about future transitions? Well, going from early childhood special education into kindergarten and elementary into middle. And, you know, some of my districts have K through three, and then that's primary. And then they have intermediate is four through six. And then they have, you know, it's, there's a lot of transitions. And so, you know, Vicki just wrote me back and said, how can you say a child's future isn't applicable? And so, you know, for those <laughs> listeners that are in Texas, think about that when it's time to complete the autism supplement and that futures planning is always applicable, whether it's transitioning to a different teacher, a different grade, a different campus, or transitioning into the real world. So um, I really just love your story about Stephen. Yeah. I mean, as far as the autism supplement goes, I mean, one of the things, if you're even talking about a little bitty guy, if you're teaching him to use a visual schedule, you're thinking about his future. You're thinking about him being able to follow a schedule and it may look different down the road, but you're thinking about that. If you're, you know, you're teaching him to navigate the school, you're thinking about when he's able to navigate the school on his own. So you are doing things, give yourself credit for the things that you're doing. So we do that all the time, don't we? When we're talking to teachers, give yourself credit for what you're doing and write it down. And so that people know to keep doing those things and so that you can track what is working, you know? That was a really good story, Sissy. Do we have a test question? We do, it's about me and my exercise. Oh, good. So even though I'm talking about myself in third person, that's okay. Sissy likes to walk outside to get her exercise. Living in Houston, it is already hot by nine in the morning. Sissy also likes to sleep late. On weekends and when she is not working, she likes to sleep, have some coffee, and get her old dogs out for a slow stroll before she goes for her exercise. Sissy also does not like to exercise in the heat. If it is too hot, she tends to skip her walks outside. If she makes note of the weather before she goes to sleep the night before, she'll set her alarm and get up early to get her exercise in before it gets too hot. In this story, getting up early and the heat are A, positive reinforcement and negative punishment, B, negative reinforcement and positive punishment, C, positive reinforcement and positive punishment, D, negative reinforcement and negative punishment or E who cares? No one wants to exercise anyway. (laughs) Well, I like E, but I don't (laughs) think that that would be a test question, a test choice, a choice on a test on the BCBA test. And it sounds like um, Susan's a lot like sissy and that I do like to sleep late. I don't really like to exercise, but I do like to sleep late. So we know it's not E. And we know that D talks about negative punishment and negative reinforcement. So getting up early would not dec- that. Yeah, no, that I can't make sense of that piece. Can you? Yeah. So, okay. Well, I'll start at the top. Positive reinforcement means I'm adding something to increase behavior. Right. Well, when the heat is added, that does not increase the behavior, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. So I know it's not going to be a um, and negative punishment would mean I'm taking something away to decrease the behavior, which we're not. Yeah. And it wouldn't be C, positive reinforcement and positive punishment because you're 
your behavior of getting up early isn't really being reinforced and you're not adding anything to the environment to decrease the problem, the behavior of walking or of the heat. Yeah. So it's got to be negative reinforcement for getting up early because we're removing the heat, which increases you getting up early. Right. And then the heat has to be positive punishment because when it's hot, you decrease walking. Right. Getting up early removes the heat. So it increases my walking by taking something away, the heat. But if I can't take the heat away, it becomes positive punishment and keeps me from walking. That could be a tough test question for some people. But I know that there are test questions like that where you have to really evaluate two variables and look at the effects on each variable. So um, if you didn't get that, please feel free to comment on our, uh, on, on any social media platform or ask questions or share. We certainly will do take a look at those and do respond. Um, As always, if you have any comments about this episode, please rate and review on the podcast app that you're using or like share or comment on social media. Thanks everybody for listening. I hope you have a great weekend and we will be back here this time next week. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back. Bye.